The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We have been on this series, which was Pete was very gracious in just designating this summer series of My Favorite Story, which was basically his giving us license to talk about anything that we wanted to talk about. However, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you may think that the real topic of interest to us would be the condition of James's soul. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, James telling us that he was the chief sinner among us, and then last week, Peter was all too happy to affirm that reality. <clears throat> you know, Jesus had his disciples that were constantly engaged in this argument about who among them was the greatest. Someone might want to let Pete know that the guys on his staff are arguing about who could be the best sinner. So, you know, keep them in your prayers. No, actually, if you know these two young men at all, there's absolutely no question that Jesus is the captain of their souls. And it's a pleasure to know them and experience their ministry, is it not? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we just come to you this morning and we have spoken to you in our worship. We have spoken to you in our giving. Now we present ourselves before you to hear from you through your word. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just come and settle upon our hearts and our minds to quiet us that we might hear and receive what you have for us this day. Plant your word deeply within our hearts that it might continue its work of transforming us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might go away from here better prepared to live lives that bring glory and honor to your name. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, continuing with this theme of my favorite story, we're going to look at a story this morning from the Gospel of John. It's not necessarily because it's my favorite story or I don't know anyone else's favorite story for that matter, but I've chosen it for this reason. It's applicable to each and every one of us because it's a story about a follower of Christ who fails. He denies the Lord the most critical moment after having arrogantly proclaimed that he would be faithful to the Lord even unto death. And that may be enough in itself to clue you in that we're going to be talking about the Apostle Peter this morning. The Peter that we see in the Gospels is a flawed human being. He says the wrong things. He does the wrong things. He's full of himself. But that's precisely why I love him, because Peter is profoundly human. When we look at him, we see him making mistakes and the errors. He will do something dumb and he'll follow it up with something even dumber sometimes. We do the exact same things. He encourages me because I see if there's hope for Christ using Peter, then there's hope that he can use me and work in my life as well. Now our story here actually begins at the Last Supper, the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. It will end weeks later on the shores of the Sea of Galilee during an early morning breakfast where the merciful and unwavering love of Christ restores a broken and humbled man. I call this this morning breakfast on the beach. That sounds rather pleasant, doesn't it? I don't know what images come to your mind when I say breakfast on the beach, but for me, I think of Maui. I think of their early morning on the beach, that sapphire blue water is just lapping against the shore, just with this gentle rhythm that just kind of causes your soul to go, ah. 
There's a gentle breeze blowing and then set there before you is this beautiful breakfast buffet. It's loaded up with all kinds of fresh fruit, all these fresh baked pastries, plenty of Kona coffee and bacon. <laughs> Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, I can tell you that this breakfast that we're going to be talking about this morning is nothing like that at all. It is an uncomfortable breakfast for all who are there, especially Peter. But despite the unpleasantness of it, it is ultimately good and glorious in its outcome. And as we track through this this morning, I hope that we can all see that all of us from time to time need a similar unpleasant appointment with our Lord. Because in reality, we are no less offenders and deniers of Christ than what we see portrayed here by Peter. We can look at his denial on the night of Jesus' betrayal and think, well, how could anyone possibly do that, forgetting that you and I deny Christ on a daily basis? We deny him when we get angry at the guy uh, on the, in traffic. We deny him when we, get, we snap back at our husband or our wife with some kind of a snarky comment. We deny him when we partake in that coarse jesting and, and foolish talk that sometimes occurs in our workplace. A myriad of ways where we are denying Christ on a regular basis. So we shouldn't set Peter up as being some prolific sinner and excuse ourselves as we look at this. Our strength, too, is going to falter. And we're going to fail in critical times. We'll deny the one who bought us with his blood and we will find ourselves in need of that forgiveness and restoration. It probably won't happen at some breakfast on the beach somewhere, but it will happen nonetheless. So let's go to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, to the Last Supper where our story begins. And we're going to actually be reading quite a bit of scripture here this morning in order to keep the flow of the story as it unfolds. So let's read this. We're going to start actually down in verse 33, but at the point we're picking this up in the narrative, that Jesus has already washed the disciples' feet. He's already instituted the new covenant, the new covenant meal, which we partake of, and Judas has already left to go and betray Christ. And so we begin here in verse 33. Jesus is speaking and he says this, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. We get a bit of a hint here as to what will lead to Peter's downfall. He takes offense to Jesus telling him that he can't follow. He is convinced that he's ready to die for the Lord if that's what's required of him. Matthew and Mark would both record in their Gospels that Peter says that even if all the others fall away, I will not fall away. Throughout the Gospels, we see Peter be brash, we see him be outspoken, impulsive, and arrogant, even to the point in Matthew chapter 16 where he takes the Lord aside to rebuke him 
You remember that? They were in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked of the disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they begin to say, Well, you are Elijah, one of the prophets. And he says, Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to him is, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he goes in to talk to him, changing his name from, from Simon to Peter. And you understand all the things that Jesus begins to talk to him about then, or to all of the disciples, that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be uh, betrayed by the Jewish rulers and ultimately be crucified. And Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having a conversation with Jesus and taking him aside to, to rebuke him? But that's what Peter does. And watch Jesus' response to him. He looks at him and calls him Satan and tells him to get behind me because you're not mindful of the things of God, but mindful of the things of men. So Peter is not afraid to wander off into places that no one should be willing to go. He's been at the center of the arguments among the disciples as to who was the greatest among them. And I'm sure when he made this pronouncement that night there at the Last Supper that he would always be with Jesus, he meant that. The problem is, is he didn't know the fickleness of his own heart. He didn't know the intensity of the trial that was about to come upon him. He was looking to do this in his own strength, and ultimately that would lead to failure. I wonder how many times you and I have been caught up in the emotions of the moment and have made some declaration or some promise to God that we ultimately failed to honor and to keep. We all do it, do we not? But that tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that we must be careful not to mistake in the moment passions or strong emotions for a gospel-rooted conviction, for they are not the same thing. And our passions and our emotions will indeed deceive us. Now, if we were to turn to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, we'd find some additional information being given us here, some important details that John does not address. Both Matthew and Mark indicate that Jesus stated this in this, this discussion with his disciples. Jesus said, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus is quoting here from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Luke brings an entirely different expression to it. He records it this way. Jesus looks to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now I point all of this out for the simple reason that I want us to see that actually what is unfolding here is all according to the sovereign hand of God. Jesus said that their falling away this night would actually be the fulfillment of Scripture, a prophecy that was given hundreds of years prior to this particular incident. Peter's denial and the abandonment of Christ by the other disciples are not arbitrary events. They are necessities to the fulfillment of Scripture and the providential purpose of God. What we're seeing here is that God is absolutely sovereignly, sovereignly reigning over everything that happens. God's providence is pervasive, and we see it at work here in all of this. This brings us to what I would call a point to ponder. This is for you to just think about this afternoon when you're lying before the Lord in deep meditation. 
There will be events in our life where we will fail, where we will deny the Lord's rule in our life, where we turn our back on Him in some way, and yet those times will prove to be essential to the accomplishment of God's purpose for us. Remember what Romans 8.28 tells us? That God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It's hard to think that our failures would somehow or another be used by God to accomplish His purpose, but that's ultimately what the Scripture tells us. So we continue now in our story, and we come to John chapter 18. Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken to the house of the high priest. And as we turn here, bear in mind that there are two, two trials that are taking place simultaneously. There's the official trial of Jesus as he's standing before the Jewish religious leaders. But Peter himself is enduring a trial of a different nature. Jesus will be faithful to the end. Peter will prove to be unfaithful as he's accused by a servant girl and some bystanders. So let's now go to John 18, if we may, and verse number 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. I am not. So we see the first denial here in verse 18. Now drop down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. We have three denials and the rooster crows. Peter has gone precisely the way that Jesus said he would. Now, for whatever reason, John just drops the whole topic. He just kind of just coldly drops us right here at this point. So, again, we need to turn to Matthew, to Mark, and to Luke to find some important details that continue to unfold in this story of what's happening with Peter here. Mark says that at this point, Peter breaks down and begins to weep. Matthew and Luke record that he went out and wept bitterly. Luke adding that at the crowing of the rooster, Jesus turns to look at Peter. Think for a moment of the pain that look would have afflicted upon Peter when Jesus turns at that moment. It, I do not believe that it is at any way at all an I told you so kind of look. It's entirely different. It's a look of compassion. It's a look of understanding. And just imagine how that would have made the pain in Peter's soul all that more acute at that moment. Peter is suddenly broken over his denial of his Lord at this most critical moment, and he flees from the scene in shame, in brokenness, and in bitter weeping. You know, there's a glorious verse in Proverbs 34, Psalms 34, I'm sorry, that's so appropriate to what is happening here at this moment. Verse 18 of Psalm 34 says this, The Lord is near 
to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Peter has messed up big time, but can I tell you that the God who called him has not abandoned him. I set before you this morning this thought, another one of our points to ponder. God uses this moment of failure in Peter's life to bring him to a place of brokenness where a much-needed work can take place in his soul. And God uses that same principle in our lives. The Peter that we are going to see after his restoration, after the day of Pentecost, is entirely different from the Peter that we see in the Gospels. You know yourselves that if you've walked with the Lord for any time at all, you have come to learn that fruit springs from the difficult seasons in our lives much more than it does the easy seasons of our life. So now we've gone through the denial, it's time to go to the beach. So let's go to John chapter 21, shall we? As we come to John 21, Jesus has been crucified. The resurrection has taken place. Jesus and the disciples are back in Galilee. It's post-resurrection, and a month may have passed between the night of Peter's denial and this early morning breakfast that's about to take place here. There is nothing in the Gospels that indicate to us that up to this point there has been any reconciliation between Jesus and Peter. Now, Jesus has shown himself to his disciples, so Peter has seen him, but the, the, the Gospels give us no indication that this unfinished business has ever been attended to. And at this point, Peter, James, and John, and four other disciples have gone back to fishing. They have fished all night and caught nothing. And as they make their way towards land, they see this, the glow of a fire on the seashore and the silhouette of an of of as-yet unrecognizable figure. And as they draw closer, the figure calls out to them, asking them if they've caught any fish. They reply that they haven't, and he instructs them to cast the net on the other side of the boat. Well, you know the story because we've seen this before back when Jesus called these men to be his followers. The net's so full of fish, they can't pull it in, and John recognizes that this silhouetted figure on the seashore is Jesus, and he says, it's the Lord. What does Peter do? The scripture says he puts on his cloak because he had been stripped for the work that they were doing. He jumps in the water and he heads for the shore while the rest of these disciples bring the boat and their catch to shore. When they get there, they find that Jesus already has some fish on the fire, but he instructs them to bring some of their fish as well and to come and have breakfast. All seems good until breakfast is over and Jesus begins to preside over a real come-to-Jesus meeting. So we look at John 21, look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. You know, as you read through that, 
you can kind of feel the tension that's developing here in this conversation. I told you this is not a pleasant breakfast on the beach. And there are some difficult questions that arise from what we read here. Number one, to whom or what does Jesus refer when he asks Peter, do you love me more than these? Secondly, why is it that Peter is grieved the third time that Jesus asks him, do you love me? And then the third one is, why does Jesus appear to humiliate Peter here in front of the other disciples? Why didn't he take him aside privately and have this conversation with him? So let's kind of conclude this here this morning by taking a look at these questions and what the answers to those might be. The first of those, obviously, is to whom or what does Jesus refer when he asks Peter, do you love me more than these? The context gives us two options. It's either the other disciples who are gathered there or it would have to be the fish, the nets, and the boats, the elements of Peter's livelihood, which would represent his financial security. You know, there are commentators and scholars that say that uh, Peter particularly and the other disciples have become discouraged and disillusioned after the, the uh, crucifixion, and now they're back in Galilee, and they've just kind of abandoned ministry and gone back to fishing. There's, there's really no reason, I don't think, for us to assume that that's the case. Remember, they're no longer in the full-time ministry with Jesus at this point. And prior to the crucifixion, they've been traveling with him. They've all been supported out of the community purse. That's no longer happening. They've, these men have families that they need to take care of. They've got bills that need to be paid. They very well may have gone back to fishing just because they needed money. Okay, But anyway, we have two different options here, and the scholars and the commentators, as scholars and commentators always are, are divided over what the answer to the question might be. And actually, if you think about it, there's two ways we could interpret the answer if Jesus, or the question that Jesus presents to them regarding, do you love me more than these, if the these are the other disciples. Because Jesus could be saying, Peter, do you love me more than these men? Or, Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? So, what's the answer here? Well, first off, Peter knew exactly what he was asking. There was no mystery to him at all as what was transpiring. It's you and I that are left to try to understand what was taking place here. I'm going to cast my vote this morning for the other disciples. And particularly in the context of Jesus asking, do you love me more than these men love me. Now you're going to say, why? Well, at first I thought, no, there's no way that that could be the case because we remember that all during Jesus' public ministry, these disciples were always arguing among, about who was the greatest among them. And I'm thinking, there's no way that Jesus is going to feed that mentality. And that question would almost seem to do that. But then you think about it a little bit deeper and you realize that, no, that's really not the case. That this idea of uh, Peter loving Jesus more than the other disciples is really what Peter was implying that night at the Last Supper in his response to Jesus when he said that even if they all left, he would still be there. It's like Peter is saying to him, listen, Lord, nobody here is as faithful as me. Nobody loves you like I do. So I think what he's asking him, Peter, do you really? Do you really love me more? then these men love me. Now, whether that's correct or not, I don't know. I have to wait till we get to heaven to find out, or you can come tell me if you've got this all figured out. I don't know, but something I'm sure of is this. 
both of those options, people and money, can be the source of our denying the Lord. They can be the source of unfaithfulness on our part. Some of us struggle with being people pleasers. We value the opinions of others more than we value pleasing the Lord. We want to fit in. We want to feel like we're a part. We want people to embrace us. We want to feel the love coming from other people. And that can sometimes cause us to compromise in our obedience in our service to the Lord. There's an interesting verse in Proverbs 29, 25. It says that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You ever felt snared by the opinions of other people as you want to... to receive their acceptance in your life. Others of us, however, might struggle with too strong of a desire for wealth or for financial security, which can lead to compromise and wrong choices as well. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not condemning wealth. He's not condemning to be rich. What he's condemning is a motivation in life to become rich, to accumulate, to have things. And he says that that love of money that drives men, that, that becomes the motivation in their life, will result in all kinds of difficulties and challenges that the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all evil. So we have people and money, two great threats to our faithfulness and our genuine affection for Christ. Second question, why is Peter grieved the third time he's asked, do you love me? It's likely that you at some time or another have heard a message built around the two different verbs for love that Jesus uses in his three questions here. The first two times that Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, he uses a Greek word, agapao, as love. And then the third time when he asked him the question, he changes the verb and uses the word phileo. And the argument goes along these lines, that this word agapao represents a, a higher or purer or more intense kind of love, more like the love that God might have for us, while phileo is a more humanly kind of love. It's a weaker expression of love, the affection that we would have for friends or for or a form of brotherly love. Now that particular argument makes for great drama as you go through the story, but it pushes the understanding of these words too far. They are both used to convey similar meaning in both biblical and non-biblical literature. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul writes this, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In love with this present world. The term love there is this word, is this verb, agapao. In other words, he's using this to, to talk about a love that's not honorable at all. Now in John chapter 20 and verse 2, when John's referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loves, the word for love there that John uses is phileo. This, what sometimes is considered to be this more human love, this affection or whatever. So you can see that trying to, to base the argument on those words really falls apart when you understand how those words are used. 
I believe that Peter is grieved because the three questions are three solicited affirmations of love in direct response to the three denials that Peter made the night of Jesus' betrayal, his three failures of love. Jesus is dealing with unfinished business here that has existed between them since that night. There's a painful but a wonderful work of God that's occurring, and it's a necessary part of Peter's restoration. I also think Peter is aware of the reality that both he and the Lord know that while he does genuinely love the Lord, that love is deficient. And rest assured, my friends, Jesus eventually is going to come to us to deal with any unfinished business that stands in our way or stands in the way of our relationship with him. And it may be painful for us, but necessary. And we should learn to welcome it as the Lord works that work in us, it will yield the peaceful work of righteousness. Hebrews 12 tells us that all whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If you're going to be a child of God, you are going to experience the chastening of God. And the scripture tells us there in Hebrews 12 that that chastening is never pleasant. And there's not a one of us in here that hasn't experienced and cannot testify to the fact that it is not pleasant but it does yield fruit in our lives. And secondly, deep down, we all know that our love for the Lord is weak and deficient. We know we don't love him as we should. We're hot one minute and we're cold the next. Affections that should only be for him, suddenly we're directing those towards ultimately worthless things in this life. We do not love him as we should. But don't despair. Because our security in Christ does not depend upon our faithfulness, but upon his. This is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty is that everything that's necessary for us to please God is granted to us by God. The scripture says he is all the while at work within us to do what? that we might both will and do his good pleasure. And then our last question, why does Jesus appear to humiliate Peter here in the front of the other disciples? Why didn't he take him aside privately to do this? I mean, this is leadership 101, right? I mean, we all know that you praise in public, you confront or correct in private. But that question, that the framing of the question that way fails to grasp the reality of what's really taking place here. This isn't at all about humiliating Peter. It's Christ restoring Peter in love. Remember now, basically at the Last Supper, Peter declared himself to be the greatest among the disciples with his pronouncement that he would never abandon the Lord. His boast was in the presence of these disciples. His fall was visible to these disciples. And now Jesus has come back around to restore him in the sight of these disciples. Peter has always been the de facto leader of these people. And going forward, he is going to become the chief spokesman for Christ in the newly established church. 
Peter and these men both need to know that he is forgiven. And not only forgiven, but restored. And his call to follow and serve Christ has not, has not been withdrawn. It has not been lost. Jesus called him, and the purposes for which he called him will be fulfilled in him. So Jesus takes this opportunity to restore. This is necessary to get Peter restored to the place that he must occupy as the plan and purpose of God continues to unfold. Peter needed to understand that even though he had forsaken Christ, Christ had never forsaken him. And as we continue on reading here in John, we will see just the, how wonderful the promise and the work of God is in Peter's life here. Remember that when faced with the, with the certainty or the, with the risk of death, Peter failed. But Jesus says, Peter, the day's going to come when you won't fail. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. The Lord continues addressing Peter, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. There's a promise here. There's a promise. The work of restoration that Jesus does in Peter is a work that will see him through to the end. Peter failed when there was the risk of death, but what Jesus is promising here is, Peter, there will come a day when you're going to die that someone will take you to a place you don't want to go. Tells us they're signifying the death. History or, or tradition tells us that Peter was crucified. Matter of fact, crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the manner of his Lord. Jesus says, Peter, my work in you will be so complete. This restoration that I'm affecting in you will be so thorough that there will come a day when men will take you to the place of your death and you will go. You will go. You will not deny me. You will not fail. You will not depart. He who begins a good work will complete it in us. Can you say amen to that? Ironically, while Peter claimed to be ready to die for the Lord on the night of his betrayal and failed, Jesus says here that the day will come when Peter will be led to his death for Christ's sake and he will glorify God in that death. If there's only one thing that you can take from this message this morning, let it be this. It's that your failures, your denials, your grievous seasons of sin have not and cannot separate you from Christ's love for you. We can do really dumb things. We can deliberately disobey. And I'm not giving anybody license here. You understand that, right? I'm just saying that we can and we will blow it. We will make big mistakes. We will fail. And as a result of that, sometimes we will be broken. We'll be humble. We'll grieve over the sin that we've committed. But that never causes Christ to turn his back on us. It never means that what he's called us to do and the purpose that he has, has laid out before us is taken away from us because he will come along. And he will come along to deal with that unfinished business that needs to be dealt with, that he might restore us, that we might continue on the path 
of fulfilling his purpose. His love for you, his call to serve him, and his commitment to see you through to the end have never been withdrawn. They have never been lost. But let me close with this. If you need to have your version of breakfast on the beach with Christ to tend to some unfinished business, then do it. Do it. If you find yourself already in such a season where you are just aware that God's got you in a place where he's dealing with you on some things, then my best advice to you is just simply humble yourself before him and surrender because you are not going to win. Your obstinance will only prolong your agony. He who began a good work will finish it in you. He is all the while at work that we might both will and do for his good pleasure.